0: Hollywood Bowl, September 25th, 2017. 17,000 fans have just witnessed Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers complete a rousing rendition of American Girl, the iconic track that set them on their way to rock superstardom 40 years earlier. It's their final song at the gig, the last of three at the Bowl, and the final show billed as the 40th anniversary tour. As adoring fans cheer, Tom takes the mic. I want to thank you for 40 years of a really great time, he says, smiling warmly, arms held out wide as he acknowledges the adulation. Thank you. A few months earlier, Tom Petty predicted the tour would be the last big one. He told Rolling Stone, We're all on the backside of our 60s. I have a granddaughter now, I'd like to see as much as I can. I don't want to spend my life on the road. This tour will take me away for four months. With a little kid, that's a lot for me. Video footage of the Hollywood gig shows Tom clearly moving around the stage in great discomfort. Moments before leaving the stage, he bends forward to sign autographs for a handful of fans at the front, poised with their programs and posters. The fans in the foreground are beaming ecstatically to outwitness their legend play for them. Little knowing Petty has given his all and performed through the entire set and all of the 53 dates tour with a fractured hip. That was how much music meant to one of rock music's most gifted guitarists and songwriters. He wasn't going to let anyone down. But to be able to continue making music Petty had to rely on prescriptive meds Many of them. Just seven days after his final Hollywood Bowl concert, Tom Petty was dead. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the magical life and death of Tom Petty. We uncover the shocking details and examine the mystical facts behind one of the most prolific rock singer-songwriters in the world. This is Death by Misadventure. Petty was born October the 20th, 1950 under the zodiac sign of Libra, in Gainesville, Florida, the first of two sons of Kitty, a local tax office worker, and Earl Petty, an insurance salesman. Tom's brother, Bruce, was seven years younger. As a child growing up in Gainesville, Tom suffered at the hands of his father, Earl, an alcoholic who hid behind his respectable public persona. Because Tom's mother, Kitty, wouldn't let him drink at home, Earl Petty would often return home late, drenched in booze and looking for a fight. It was in these dark times when Earl would relentlessly beat Kitty, Tom, or his younger brother. Tom said, I learned to absolutely disappear. I got the fuck away when he was around. It wasn't until 2015 that the abuse became known when Tom revealed all to his friend Warren Zanes, who was writing his biography. In Petty, the biography, he tells Zanes, He beat me so bad that I was covered in raised welts from my head to my toes. I mean, you can't imagine someone hitting a child like that. My mother and grandmother laid me in my bed, stripped me, and they took cotton and alcohol, cleaning these big welts all over my body but apparently Tom's father wasn't the only violent one in the family William Pulpwood Petty Tom's grandfather is said to have fled Florida long before Tom was born after a brawl turned nasty and he killed a man with an axe under this cloud of violence and fearful unpredictability Tom made a vow to himself to escape Florida as soon as he could The way out, he quickly realised, was through music. That realisation stemmed from a chance encounter during a visit to a film set where his uncle was working on a movie titled Follow That Dream. Tom was just ten years old when a young Elvis Presley suddenly turned up and his life changed forever. I remember it really clearly, Tom recalled. Elvis came in a line of white Cadillacs like a reverse funeral and each guy that got out was wearing a kind of mohair suit with a pompadour and I thought each one was Elvis and then suddenly he steps out and you go oh, I see there's quite a difference he just looked radiant like nothing I'd ever seen in my life and he came walking right up to where we were and I was just stunned Tom Petty had found his beacon he instantly became a Presley fan. Music would become a safe place, a place where he could be free from the fear and abuse he experienced whenever his father was about to come home. But it was the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964 that gave further credence to the idea that making music could be something he could do. He was 14 when he was blown away by that Ed Sullivan performance. By high school, Petty's passion for music was all-consuming he began playing bass with a local group called The Epics, and at the age of 17, he dropped out of school and formed Mudcrutch with Epic's bandmate Tom Leedon. Mudcrutch served as the house band at Dubbs Lounge and were named after the farm where two of its members lived. Petty quickly emerged as the frontman and primary songwriter in the group, which soon developed a devoted local following. In between the times, Tom wasn't working as a gravedigger was part of the grounds crew at Florida University. One of Tom's first guitar teachers was Don Felder, a fellow Gainesville resident, who later joined the Eagles as lead guitarists. Four years Petty senior, Felder showed Tom some of what he knew, starting Petty on a path to a style that blended mercy beat and birdsy jangle, R&B and rockabilly rhythms. The year 1974 proved a pivotal one for Petty. Gainesville had a thriving rock and roll scene in the 1960s, but it wasn't a place where aspiring rock stars would reach their ultimate aspirations. As Warren Zanes puts it, the reason to make it in Florida was to make it out of Florida. It all started with the greatest trip of my life, Tom says, referring to a cross-country road trip from his hometown to Los Angeles. Tom was already married to his girlfriend, Jane Benyo, but decided on the trip with Mudcrutch in the hopes of reaching a wider audience. Soon after their arrival, Tom found himself in a telephone booth outside a diner on Sunset Boulevard, sifting through a phone book looking for a record companies. There on the ground was a piece of paper. It contained a list of 25 local record labels, with addresses and phone numbers, most likely left behind by another rock and roll dreamer. The thing about LA was that it was exactly what I hoped it would be, said Tom. We drove down the streets, and everywhere you looked were signs for record companies. MGM, RCA, Capital, a and It was obvious that we had come to the right place. Shelter Records, situated on Hollywood Boulevard, saw enough in Mudcrutch to sign them up and Tom and the band spent countless hours there hanging out and listening to music. The label organised lodgings for them at the Hollywood Premier Motel a less than glamorous accommodation that Tom described as really a hooker place. It's also where his wife, Jane informed that she was pregnant with their first child. Shelter released a Mudcrutch single Depot Street but it didn't cause much of a stir. Nevertheless, the group continued recording at the mansion of musician Leon Russell, the hitmaker who was a founder of Shelter Records. Tom would house-sit for him, but was a long way from being able to afford his own mansion. In fact, Shelter Records dropped Mudcrutch from its label, while they were still working on music in Russell's house. Tom, however, was invited to stay on the Shelter payroll but soon found himself back in a cramped hotel, this time at the Winona Motel, close to Tom's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'd gone from living in a rock star's mansion to a motel room, which for some reason didn't bother me, says Tom. I didn't need much. Shelter was across the street, and my whole social world was there. After the birth of Tom's first daughter, Jane took baby Adria back to Florida while Tom tried to pick up the pieces of his music career. If 1974 was pivotal, the following year was even better. It was instrumental to the success Tom Petty had been striving for as a musician and songwriter.
1: After trying to put together a new backing band, Petty reconnected with his former Mud Crutch bandmates Mike Campbell and Ben Mont-Tench who were playing with bassist Ron Blair and drummer Stan Lynch. The quintet restructured Petty's deal with Shelter, signed a contract as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and set to work on a new record. Their first album, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, was released in November 1976 and proved to be the blueprint for the hits that would follow, combining a hard-edged rock-and-roll core with Beatles and Birds pop elements all the while featuring Petty's distinctive voice and storytelling style that crafted songs into short musical vignettes. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' debut album fared poorly at home, until a tour of England with Nils Lofgren landed it on the British charts. Tom Petty was well on his way to stardom. Incredibly, though, the single, American Girl one of their best-known and best-loved songs, failed to reach the American charts until It Too was re-released nearly two decades later. By the mid-70s, Mr. Petty had enough cash to buy a red Camaro, which he used to pick up Bruce Springsteen, who called him for a cruise down Sunset Boulevard. They picked up several eight tracks from Tower Records and drove until they listened to every song on every one of them. When congratulations came on, Springsteen raised his arms to the heaven and said, You can take me now. Petty loved that. He liked knowing another man out there who went to the same church. Their second album, You're Gonna Get It, was the band's first top 40 album, featuring the singles I Need to Know and Listen to Her Heart. However, their momentum was momentarily threatened when Shelter was bought by MCA, and Petty's attempts to renegotiate their contract led to lengthy legal proceedings that left him bankrupt and bitter. Despite this acrimonious start with MCA, the group signed with its subsidiary Backstreet Records and began work on their next album, Damn the Torpedoes. Released in 1979, it rocketed to number two on the charts. On its way to selling more than three million copies. It's packed with quality songs and spawned the enduring singles Don't Do Me Like That, Here Comes My Girl, and Refugee, which firmly established Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as rock superstars. The album Hard Promises, released in 1981, became a top 10 hit, going platinum and producing the hit single The Waiting. The album also featured Petty's first duet, Insider, with Stevie Nicks. Bass player Ron Blair quit the group and was replaced on the fifth album, Long After Dark, by Howie Epstein. The resulting lineup lasted until 1994. At the same time, the pressures of fame were taking their toll on both Petty's marriage and his relationship with his bandmates. Looking to take their music in a new direction, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers began work on their new album, Southern Accents, with producers Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, Robbie Robertson of the band, and Jimmy Oveen, who had co-produced Damn the Torpedoes with Petty. It reached number seven on the charts and featured the singles, Rebels, Make It Better, Forget About Me, and Don't Come Around Here No More which was a neo-psychedelic track co-written by Stewart and inspired by Stevie Nicks. It reached number 13 and was accompanied by a popular Alice in Wonderland-themed video that became a big hit on MTV. A year later, Tom's first solo album, Full Moon Fever, produced by Jeff Lynn, became a massive hit. It went multi-platinum and reached number 3 on the charts. Its top single, Free Fallen, reached number seven and remains among Tom Petty's best-known songs, along with Running Down a Dream and I Won't Back Down. Around this time, it became known that Petty had secretly brokered a deal with Warner Brothers years earlier, and that he would be leaving MCA, bringing an end to years of conflict between him and that label. As a farewell... A Greatest Hits album was released in 1993, which featured the Rick Rubin-produced single Mary Jane's Last Dance. It was a great success, the album staying on the Billboard charts for more than six years. Though some of Petty's finest hours were still to come, there was much pain to endure along the way. Mm -hmm.
2: As a young teen, Petty liked art, clothes, and wearing his hair long after the Beatles arrived on the music scene. His parents thought he was gay, but it wasn't so. However, if a girl in junior high school didn't show him the same attraction he felt for her, he was traumatized and felt paralyzed. Petty revealed in an interview, When I got my feelings hurt, I really couldn't have felt worse. It was physical. My throat clamped up and I just wanted to die. As a young man and as a child, I was very sensitive, too delicate. When it came to emotional stuff, I could break like a twig. Petty met his first wife, Jane, when they were both in high school. Stevie Nicks, who had a longtime friendship with Petty, once asked Jane when she'd met him. She said, I met him at some point during the age of 17, Nicks told Billboard in an interview. But I thought she said the edge of 17. I said, Jane, can I use that? Can I write a song called The Edge of Seventeen? The rest is musical history. After Petty married Jane, she struggled to find happiness as a mother and a wife to a busy musician who was rarely around. It wasn't the life she had envisioned for herself. It was a lonely existence, with Tom rarely home, so Jane got high and drank to ease her loneliness and isolation. Stevie Nicks was doing a lot of drugs when she first showed up on the scene and indulged Jane, who embraced it. Petty's friendship with Nicks would finally be one of the few human constants in his life outside of the band, management, and crew. She'd come in and out over decades, his biographer wrote. She came into my life like a rocket, just refusing to go away, Petty had once said about Nicks. The long and enduring friendship between Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty is the stuff of legend and began in 1978 when Stevie started calling him after the release of Petty's second album. Discussing the origins of her 1981 solo album, Donna, Nicks described how she had visited Atlantic Records' then-president Doug Morris and made her pitch for the record. Nicks wanted to join the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Band but was told it would never happen by Morris. She obviously hadn't heard Tom Petty's mantra, no girls allowed. Nick settled for meeting Petty's producer, Jimmy Ivine. The pair started dating and moved in together later, which gave Nick's further chance to become a covert superfan since Petty would come by to listen to mixes and playbacks. However, after Ivine didn't hear a single on Belladonna, the producer talked to Petty, who agreed to give Nick's a song and perform it with her. The tune, "Stop Dragging My Heart Around." The session was short. Nick's recalled she showed up and sang on the song, but it was a rousing success. The song peaked at number three on the Billboard singles charts and kickstarted Nick's solo career. Much to Nick's delight, she and Petty had also started occasionally jamming together. They got together whenever they could. They would go to Tom's house, they'd record stuff, write, and just sing, which was their favorite thing in the world to do. Hard advice was written following a lecture Tom Petty gave Stevie on his way through Phoenix one night, Nick's told Uncut magazine. I was having a little problematic moment in my life, and he gave me one of his seriously hard advice lectures. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, "'This pain's gone on too long. Go home.' light up your incense, and your candles, and write some real songs. The chorus goes, sometimes he's my best friend. It was really sometimes Tom's my best friend. Nix changed it because she knew Tom would not want her to say his name. The Toronto Sun once asked Petty about his friendship with Nix. Have you got a couple hours, he responded. She's a good friend. I've known her since 1978, and she's insisted on being in my life. Some of my best musical memories of her are sitting on the couch and just playing the guitar while she sings. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Nick says that Tom's affectionate empathy with women stems from the women in his life. He had two daughters. He had two amazing loves. Petty's first wife, Jane, his second wife, Dana, whom he married in 2001. He was surrounded by strong women. The women around him pretty much went their own way, and he was good with that. He gave me a lot of advice about stuff. He was the kind of person who said, here's my advice, if you take it, great. If you don't, that's fine too. He was never going to shake a finger in your face and make you feel bad if you didn't take his advice. Even Stevie realized there was a deep sense of connection in Tom and Jane Petty's marriage, but it was a troubled dream that was falling apart. By 1984, he knew he was leaving his marriage. Tom considered canceling an 18 month road tour with Bob Dylan in 1986, because Jane was losing a fight with mental illness at their home in Encino. But Stevie convinced him to go. She went along as well, having a great time and joining them on stage. Back in Los Angeles and off the road, Tom left his wife, moved into a house in the Pacific Palisades and suffered terrible pain and guilt over leaving his family. Jane would call obsessively and threaten suicide if he said he was hanging up, writes his biographer. With his life changing and the emotional walls that Petty had formed in childhood, he was sinking into a deep depression. A life of hell in Gainesville had led him to an abusive marriage. Nobody realized, though, that Tom was now using heroin, not even Stevie Nicks. I would never imagine, not in a million years, that Tom Petty would start using heroin, she said. But that changed when Tom met Dana York, who would become his second wife, at one of his concerts in Texas in the early 90s, but they didn't reconnect until 1996, when Dana's first marriage was over. Tom and Dana both felt as though they had known each other their entire lives and fell madly in love. Tom was using heroin, but didn't want Dana to know and kept it from her for a long time, while Jane continued to call obsessively and threaten suicide. I'd stepped onto a fast-moving train, but we're having moments of tremendous happiness with Tom. Chaos and darkness and all this happiness at the same time, Dana Petty told the biographer. His therapist told him that people with your level of depression don't live. They kill themselves or someone else. He was a man playing at the edge of death.
1: As an old friend and former tour mate of Tom Petty, author Warren Zanes was granted incredible access to the rock icon for his book, Petty the Biography. However, despite Petty's heavy involvement, the book is classified as unauthorized so that neither Petty nor any of the heartbreakers had any say over the final content. It's because of this freedom that Zane could reveal Petty's long-hidden heroin addiction. The book revealed Petty was using heroin throughout the 1990s, a fact that was left out of the 2007 Heartbreakers documentary Running Down a Dream by Peter Bogdanovich. In an interview with the Washington Post, Zanes explained why Petty finally decided to divulge his addiction and why the band kicked out one of its members for the same issues in the early 2000s. He's a rock and roller, Zanes explained. He had had encounters with people who did heroin, and he hit a point in his life when he did not know what to do with the pain he was feeling. He wanted to show that Petty was a man who lived the bulk of his life in the album cycle. He wrote songs, the Heartbreakers recorded those songs, they put a record together with the artwork, they released it, and they went out on the road to support it, over and over and over. Zanes also clarified what happened in 2002 when the Heartbreakers kicked out bassist Howie Epstein for the same addiction? Epstein died a year later, but according to Zanes, there was no hypocrisy in his firing from the band. The Heartbreakers had sent Howie to rehab. They tried to help him. On the last tour they had Howie on, in the days prior to the tour, he was stopped by the police in a stolen car with Carleen Carter and and black tar heroin. The Heartbreakers were hardly a case study in intolerance. They held on trying to keep the band together. That was the Heartbreakers' code. Later, drugs would lead Petty down a path of destruction. You start losing your soul, Petty told Zanes, about using heroin. He was hanging out with people he would never be seen with in a million years, and he had to get sober. Using heroin went against Petty's grain. He didn't want to be enslaved to anything. He was always trying to figure out how to do less heroin, and it just didn't work. By the time Petty's biography was published, he was sober. In fact, his life had never been more stable. As he openly revealed, he was now a strict vegetarian and was looking after his health and making sure he had sufficient sleep to continue performing live and writing new songs we can see that through tom petty's rock and roll journey he overcame his addiction with a mix of professional help healthy relationships and with his wife danny york's help to keep him sober
2: petty brought his unique music to millions of fans were heartbroken when he died on October 2nd, 2017. What do the stars reveal about his death? What cosmic factors contributed to his demise? I decided to look at his astrological chart to find some answers. Petty was born on October 20th, 1950, under the zodiac sign of charming Libra. This is the sign of the scales, and Libras are always trying to balance the different sides of their life. But Libra is also ruled by Venus, which is the planet of indulgence, so Patty was no stranger to this intoxicating effect of fame and fortune. He was ruled by his relationships and emotions, self-medicating to create that elusive balance in his life, which later led to his addiction to drugs. It wasn't until he met his second wife Dana York that he managed to kick his drug habit. Yes, like a true Libra, he was saved by love. Petty's moon in Aquarius made him have strong likes and dislikes. He was an independent and unconventional soul, who didn't especially care if someone approved of his actions or not. He was always the captain of his own ship, even if he was sailing in emotionally troubled waters. His Venus, Mercury, and Neptune in Libra gave him the creativity to be a prolific songwriter. However, when it came to love, he could easily be deceived. As often as he was preyed upon or manipulated by others, his chart reveals he felt comfortable playing the victim role like he did in his first marriage to Jane, but later could overcome those abusive patterns when he fell in love with his second wife, Dana, and got sober. Petty's rising sign was Capricorn, which is the sign of the mountain goat. I find this interesting in Tom's case as Capricorn rules the skeletal system and the bones. And when Tom died, he was dealing with a fractured hip, which had just progressed to a full break. His family said that he was in devastating pain at the time of his death because of the break, which is why he took many pills to numb the agony. This links back to his Capricorn body, which just couldn't handle the pain in his bones. One of the most illuminating parts of Petty's astrology chart is that he has his north node in Pisces, the sign of the fish. This is linked to karma and past lives, and it is strongly linked to relationships. People who have their North Node in Pisces often have relationships with people who are troubled in some way, because they believe they can save them. But this also often makes them vulnerable, and they can be abused by those who seek their help. In Petty's case, this was true with his first wife, Jane, who he married in 1974. In a biography about his life, Tom said that Jane was abusive to him throughout his marriage. He also tried to help her with mental health issues and drug addiction, only to end up addicted to drugs himself. When I look at the possible cause of death of someone in astrology, I always look at the sixth and eighth houses. The sixth house shows reasons for illness, and the eighth house shows probable cause of death. The sixth house of Tom's chart is clear, which means there was no long lingering health issue in his life that was the cause of his death. What I can see from his astrology chart in his eighth house, he had Pluto and Leo. Pluto is known as the Lord of the Underworld, and Leo is a sign that is often linked to death by a drug overdose. Sadly, the stars were right, and Petty died of an accidental overdose, which led to his cardiac arrest and later death. As well as having the north node in Pisces, the moon was also in the sign of the fish when Petty died on October 2, 2017. This made him highly sensitive that day and made him take things to heart more than he would have done so usually. When the moon is in Pisces, we tend to react emotionally to situations around us rather than logically, which could be why Petty was so upset to hear about his health problems related to his hip and perhaps the reason why he accidentally overdosed on pain pills. He just couldn't see a way beyond the pain, which is why he upped his dosage and wasn't thinking clearly enough that day to make sure that his dosage was within a safe limit. Tragically, Petty is another example of one more talented rock star who died before his time, and it could have perhaps been
1: avoided.
3: Tom Petty was born on October 20th, 1950, and had the life path number 9. In numerology, the number 9 is the symbol of wisdom and initiation. It is the last number before and has the spiritual qualities of all the numbers 1 through 8. Petty was a creative soul, and he channeled the 9 energy into some of the most popular songs in the world like Free Falling, I Won't Back Down, and Stop Dragging My Heart Around. However. Anyone with the Life Path number 9 is also known for having a dark edge to their personality. This is the dark side of our nature, which we all have, but which is more pronounced for those with the Life Path number 9. The vibration shows someone who can fall into a dark funk, swimming in depression, and they often feel victimized in their relationships. This number indicates how Tom might have felt at the end of his final tour, and facing significant health issues made him take a higher dose of medication than usual which ultimately killed him. Unable to deal with the pain, his dark side took over, and he self-medicated himself to numb this. It is too simplistic to say that someone with a life path number nine has a chance of dying at an early age. Some numerologists may tell you that the life path number nine is linked to death, but I believe it's not necessarily true on its own. On the day Tom Petty died on October 2nd, 2017, The numerology vibration was the death number four. It reveals a lot about his accidental death because this number is the sign of discipline and the need to have a strong moral compass. When someone dies of an overdose, especially someone in the public eye, their fans may ask if it was an accident or whether Petty simply couldn't take the pressure of performing, touring, and being a rock star anymore. However, the death number four on the day of his death shows me it was a tragic accident and was not a deliberate overdose or suicide. The death number four vibration makes sure that you follow the rules, and I do not believe it was intentional because he had too much to live for and loves his family. Petty was simply too much in pain from his hip break and took medication to ease his suffering, causing his cardiac arrest. And if you're a fan, you already know that Tom was not the only member of the band to die of an overdose. Howie Epstein was the bass player in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and he died of a heroin overdose at the age of 47. His drug use was well known, and it ultimately got him kicked out of the band that he loved so much. Howie was born on July 21st, 1955, and had the life path number three. Musicians with the number vibration three have emotional highs and lows that they can channel into their art or music. Petty said in a previous interview Howie was one of the most talented musicians he had ever met in his life. On the flip side, however, people who have the life path number three are also known for being prone to extravagance and often take the rock and roll lifestyle to the extreme, live fast, and die young. Howie was a big teenager in a sense. He struggled to emotionally grow up and he needed constant guidance to keep him on the straight and narrow. Tom tried to be supportive of Howie, but was also struggling with addiction himself. And ultimately, the Heartbreakers decided to kick him out of the band and it would force him to get help. Sadly, it came too late to save his life. When Howie passed away on February 23rd, 2003, his death number three mirrored his life path number three. He had completed his soul contract with his family, friends and his bandmates, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. His spirit was set free. Even though Tom and Howie died of the same vice, a drug overdose, their numerology shows the spiritual reasons for their death were much different. Tom had the death number four, but the cause was due to an accidental overdose. And I believe it was meant not to happen. In the end, Petty and Howie's numerology shows us how people may both die of a death by misadventure, but for completely different reasons. And how the complexity of the numbers can manifest in various ways in someone's life but lead to the same tragic end
1: in the end Tom was drawn to music for many reasons it was an escape route from the hellish home life but it also spoke to him on a deeper level allowing him to release the artist within. It's not a cliché to say that music was his life. It consumed him totally. It was, as he said, the only thing that made him truly happy. There was an incredible freedom and incredible power to the music, Tom once said. He also felt a sense of pride when fans would thank him for being the soundtrack of their lives. In the end, he felt music was probably the only real magic he encountered in his life. Music is pure and real. It moves and it heals. Right up until the very last moment, at 66 years of age, Tom Petty was working and working hard, and was enjoying life with his heartbreakers. Of his bandmates, Tom said affectionately not long before his passing, We communicate in a way that I really haven't seen many people do. If I go play with someone else, it always amazes me how complicated it is. In 2017, the Heartbreakers embarked on a 40th anniversary tour of the United States. The tour began on April 20th in Oklahoma City and ended on September 25th with a performance at the Hollywood Bowl in Hollywood, California. The Hollywood Bowl concert, which would ultimately be the Heartbreakers' final show, ended with a performance of American Girl. The concert that capped off the tour was the third in a trio of sold-out dates at the Hollywood Bowl. Petty's set list for his final performance was stacked with a career-spanning trove of some of his best-loved songs, including his first entry into the Top 40, 1977's Breakdown, 1994's Grammy-winning You Don't Know How It Feels, Concert favorite Free Fallen, and more. The performance served in retrospect as a defining encapsulation of the Trailblazers' unrivaled contributions to rock music and its lasting impact that crossed generations and genres. Petty was accompanied on stage by three original members of the Heartbreakers guitarist Mike Campbell, keyboardist Ben Mont-Tench, and bassist Ron Blair. More than 49,000 saw Petty at his final shows at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. The tour, commemorating the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member's four-decade career, drew a total of 637,671 fans to 44 headlining performances at arenas, amphitheaters, and stadiums in the US and Canada. One week later, after his final concert, Tom Petty died peacefully, surrounded by loved ones.
0: Tom's wife and daughter, Dana and Adria Petty, issued a statement a few months after his sad and untimely death on October the 2nd. Our family sat together this morning with the medical examiner coroner's office and we were informed of their final analysis that Tom Petty passed away due to an accidental drug overdose as a result of taking a variety of medications. Unfortunately, Tom's body suffered from many serious ailments including emphysema, knee problems and most significantly a fractured hip. Despite this painful injury, he insisted on keeping his commitment to his fans, and he toured for 53 dates with a fractured hip and, as he did, it worsened to a more serious injury. On the day he died, he was informed his hip had graduated to a full-on break, and it is our feeling that the pain was simply unbearable and was the cause of his overuse of medication. We knew before the report was shared with us that he was prescribed various pain medications for a multitude of issues, including fentanyl patches, and we feel confident that this was, as the coroner found, an unfortunate accident. As a family, we recognize this report may spark a further discussion on the opioid crisis, and we feel that it is a healthy and necessary discussion, and we hope in some way this report can save lives. Many people who overdose begin with a legitimate injury, or simply do not understand the potency and deadly nature of these medications. On a positive note, We now know for certain he went painlessly and beautifully, exhausted after doing what he loved the most, for one last time, performing live with his unmatchable rock band for his loyal fans on the biggest tour of his 40-plus year career. He was extremely proud of that achievement in the days before he passed. Don Felder, former lead guitarist of the Eagles, we believe sums up most fans' feelings about Tom Petty best. It was obvious very early on in his musical career that his talent, magnetism, and charisma were a very special gift that few souls in this world are given. He has given this world so many wonderful memories and touched millions with his magic. Gone far too soon. May he rest in peace, knowing how much he is loved and appreciated by all of us that are left behind. Tom Petty, who defined rock since the 70s and never stopped writing great music.